Tori Amos told me one time that the veil between the living and the dead is much thinner in New Orleans than it is other places. Um, so that's something that a lot of folks believe. And uh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know. I've, I've only had experience on one side of that veil, so I, I couldn't really say. I'm Rob Steinberg, and this is Festival Circuit, a series exploring the unique music of different festivals and cities around the world. This is the first season, and over the next five episodes, we will explore the music of New Orleans and the Jazz and Heritage Festival, which is now over 50 years old and still going strong. Join us this season as we explore both sides of the veil, examining the history, culture, people, and traditions that make up the powerful music of this city. Author Tom Robbins once wrote, The minute you land in New Orleans, something wet and dark leaps on you and starts humping you like a swamp beast. (laughs) I guess that resonates with me. When you walk out of the airport and breathe that first humid breath of air, you know you're in a city that feels different than anywhere else in the U.S. In 2019, New Orleans celebrated its tricentennial. From conventions to sporting events and festivals to the adult Disneyland and historic nature of the French Quarter, tourism and welcoming visitors to New Orleans is the heartbeat of the city. When one visits here, they notice the air moves differently in New Orleans. It slows to a gentler pace, as if time itself stretched, yet still carries an energy and a thrill that runs deeply through everyone and everything here. It's a combination that feels completely unlike anywhere else in the United States. The primary question we set out to answer in this series is, why is the music so much different here than anywhere else in the world? But as we started talking to people, well, we came upon more questions. Why does visiting New Orleans feel like a city that's stuck between the present and the past? And how does the music so perfectly capture that feeling? Like a combination of the most traditional music you'll ever hear, and then some of the most innovative from people of all colors, styles, and persuasions. This episode will start the party, but one thing's for sure, the veil is thinner here. Before we begin, although the 2020 festival was postponed, we wanted to bring the story to you now as a tribute to the city, the people, and the music that makes hundreds of thousands of people dance, smile, and celebrate every year. And we know the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival will happen again. So now more than ever, 
we feel like we need to tell the stories about the power of music. New Orleans is defined geographically and in other ways by water. It was isolated from the mainland of the rest of Louisiana for close to 250 years and is called the Crescent City because it's nestled between the Mississippi and Lake Pontchartrain, giving the city its iconic half moon or crescent shape. The city's topography varies between a few feet above and a few feet below sea level, and it lives almost at the very end of the Mississippi River. My first visit to New Orleans in the spring of 1977 came when I was looking at colleges, and I attended my first jazz fest. In the fall, I went to Tulane University and quickly became immersed in the music scene, introducing bands for live radio broadcasts and interviewing dozens of the local musicians on the college radio station, WTUL. After that, I returned every year of my life for jazz fests, weddings, funerals, and other celebrations until 2010 when I made it my home again. What drew me back here every year was a sense of adventure, an intoxicating feeling where I was surrounded by spirits and endless possibilities of mystical and musical adventures. For this series, we talked to a lot of artists about the music of New Orleans, but some of our conversations went way beyond music to something more elemental. We spoke with Anders Osborne, a musician who's lived in New Orleans for more than 25 years, to talk about music and more. New Orleans Offbeat Magazine named Anders New Orleans' best guitarist and best songwriter in multiple years. His 15th and most recent album, Buddha and the Blues, came out in 2019. He shared this theory about how the water impacts the spirit of the city. There's a lot of water. There's the, the colliding of different fronts from north and south that kind of meet right here over and over. But I think a big one is all that water mass coming practically more or less from Canada or from northern Minnesota, and it has just caught speed, and it just runs and runs and runs and runs and runs, and then it makes a complete 180 U-turn in the city. That's a lot of force of a lot of memories, a lot of spirit, okay? And it makes that radical turn right here. That's got to make an impact on why it swirls constantly. So I think that affects us and the fact that the weather pressures are literally colliding here nonstop all through all four seasons. And that's just the beginning. We talked with Louisiana native Papa Molly, who's played with everyone from Dr. John to George Porter Jr. to members of the Grateful Dead. He's also been putting out records and touring for decades. He's collaborated with nearly everyone in the New Orleans music scene, and he knows the city's music intimately. He sees a mystical side to the city and a meeting of the land and the water. Somebody mentioned this to me one time before, and it's, uh, you know, the, the Native Americans considered this land very sacred and very holy because of the great waters, you know, the, the Mississippi River. When the Re Mississippi River meets the, the Gulf of Mexico, that's a, that's a huge physical thing. That much water moving through that big of a space of land, it creates 
you know, creates energy, it creates friction. It's just like you put a dam across that, you could power, you know, four or five cities with that kind of energy, you know? So there's, there is an energy that passes through there, and I do believe that it, it affects everything around it. And I also, and it certainly has a lot to do with that and the melting pot aspect of all the different cultures coming together here. You know, starting with Native American culture, uh, African culture, French, Spanish, you know, colonial. It's just all, it's all played a part. Uh, the, the weather here, the, the tropical climate and the, and the bombiness of it, the, the food we eat here, it's all, it all plays a role in making this special music. As with every part of the American South, religion and the institution of slavery are intertwined closely, especially with the music and culture of New Orleans. For an in-depth look at the impact of slavery in the South, I'd recommend the 1619 Project podcast. It was produced by the New York Times in 2019 and was timed for the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first Africans in Virginia. We got some local perspective on this topic from legendary singer Irma Thomas, known as the Soul Queen of New Orleans. She talked to us about the legacy of slavery in the city and how New Orleans came to have such a definitive and unique personality. It goes back to the time when, when slaves were bought and sold here in New Orleans. And then you also have the area, this New Orleans is a city just like New York and, and I would say San Francisco, uh, cities that are port cities where you have the influences of all these various cultures. But New Orleans is the only city that I'm aware of that actually melt the cultures together, including our food and our music. And, and because of when the slaves came over, they used music as a form of communication. And then as times grew and the, the slavery ended and we started getting more visitors and I would call them imports because a lot of the people who come here to visit wind up moving here to stay. The cultures in this city seem to melt together. We take a little bit from each one of the cultures and we use it within the formula of the music. So, you know, you have Irish, you have uh, Spanish, you have uh, Dutch, you have German, you have all these various cultures that are here in this city. And, and instead of separating out the music and the food, we learn from each other and we combine all these various cultures in, in our music and in our food. And even in, in the neighborhoods, you'll see aspects of various cultures kind of inter, intermingling in, in the in the structural parts of the city. When you think of specific places in New Orleans that encompass the history of the evolution of music, there's one place that comes up again and again, Congo Square. Again, here's Papa Molly. And, and I think, too, like a lot of the um, cross-pollination of all these spiritual beliefs, too, you know? Um, it's the Catholicism, the voodoo, it's every, it all plays a part. It all plays a part. Um, even the even the more horrible aspects of our history have something good has come out of it, you know. Without the terror and the heartbreak and the unspeakable human cruelty of slavery, without that there wouldn't have been 
Congo Square, and there wouldn't have been that sense of fighting back and surviving that, and the strength and the power that comes from people fighting for their survival. And it uh, it's reflected in our music today. And uh, you know, you can still feel it. You can still feel it. You can go down Congo Square and sit there long enough and think about it long enough. You can feel it. Yeah. And and, and fortunately, there is still a sense of pride in in that culture. Congo Square is inside what is now Louis Armstrong Park in the Tremaine neighborhood just outside the French Quarter. We'll delve into some history about the Tremaine neighborhood in future episodes. In the 1700s, slaves were allowed to take Sundays off of work. And on these days, slaves would come together in Congo Square to play drums, to dance, to sing, and to just be together. In 1817, the mayor of New Orleans, Augustin de McCarty, issued a city ordinance that permitted slaves to officially gather at the place Congo, at the back of town. Unofficially, these gatherings started many years before the ordinance and continued until they were stopped during the harsher years of the antebellum period. But after the Civil War, Congo Square became a central location for music in the city. With the call and response of the slave drumming rhythms, it played a key role in the formation of jazz and eventually the Jazz Fest. The importance remains. The rhythms played at Congo Square 300 years ago can still be heard today in second lines, Mardi Grindian parades, funerals, and jazz clubs in New Orleans and across the nation. Perhaps the veil is thinner here because music and death are so intertwined in New Orleans life. All over the city, whether it's during jazz funerals or nightly music on Frenchman Street, the music carries the spirits of those who have recently passed and those who have been gone for a long time, allowing us an ongoing link to the past. We've heard time and time again that music and death have an inextricable relationship. One person we talked with had a unique perspective on that, Ben Jaffe, creative director for the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. He grew up in Preservation Hall, literally in the apartment upstairs where we conducted the interview. And he's seen decades of people come through his apartment and this venue to play music and congregate. And he's seen just as many people pass on to the next dimension. Being in Preservation Hall was both welcoming and intimidating. There were spiritual and physical reminders of decades of music, struggle, and progress in that room. It had warm, oriental rugs, comfortable chairs of varied looks and feels, and hundreds of figurines and other memorabilia memorializing jazz history and New Orleans culture. There were hundreds of records, dozens of boxes of live tape recordings, and a stand-up bass that sat right behind us during the interview. Here's Ben. You just appreciated a very young age here how music is used to celebrate life and how it's also used to memorialize uh, people and a way for, for people to um, process the pain of death, you know, and to, to see death not as something final, but as just another point along the line, you know, 
that's something you just you 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 experience very early on. It's one of the most beautiful things about this city, is that idea that that nobody really ever dies here, you know, because people are always talking about you, you know, if you meant something, you know, people will continue to talk about you, you know, that's 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 real. This topic also came up when we spoke to Reverend Ron Klingenpeel, an Episcopal priest who's hosted various shows on WWOZ-FM, the beloved community radio station in New Orleans. Here, he discusses how music and death are so intertwined in New Orleans. Music is a way to deal with grief and to express one's faith, and it's very cathartic. Um, you know, the as you carry at a jazz funeral as you carry the, the, the casket into the cemetery there's a dirge that's played and there's a slow walk and um, there's a slow march and there's this sense of grief and uh, being overpowered by death uh, but once the body is put in the tomb you turn around and you start to leave and and all of a sudden, the music changes. It becomes uh, the saints and enlivening sort of music and this upbeat sort of thing because there's this sense that the soul of the, of the, of the deceased has, has moved on to a better life. And that's something to be celebrated. So in the midst of recognizing our own grief, we also celebrate the opportunities that death opens up to us. And so I think music becomes uh, cathartic, and it's, it's a solace in our grief, and it makes connections uh, for us in ways that we may not necessarily understand intellectually, but certainly psychologically and pastorally. There's a, there's a real sense of uh, solace and joy. Uh, and a way to deal with our grief. So I think that, that, that music is essential to that. Um, it, it's, um, it's any art takes us into a realm beyond ourselves, whether it's painting or sculpture or music. Um, and that, in a sense, not only calms our soul, but also speaks to our soul in a way in which words don't necessarily do completely. Um, so I, th I, I see music as, as a real uh, bearer of grief and uh, real food for the soul in the midst of that grief. Many of the musicians we talked to brought up how their influences affect the way they play music. Here's Papa Molly again musicians past and present that have contributed to my vocabulary of music and I feel their presence the um especially when I'm in places where a lot of music has been played like I've played at Preservation Hall and I've really felt that strongly there and Tupatina's felt it very strongly there um like uh you know I think as a uh, at, at one point I I've heard other people talk about this too, but I, at one point I realized that I had gotten good enough on my instrument where I really played my best when I didn't think about it anymore. It's like it became 
less of a, of kind of like a, a conscious, um, logical thing, and more of just like letting something flow through me that was ancient and had been there long before I was there, and will will be there long after I'm gone. And I think that's what most really good musicians tend to do, um, whether they realize it or not. You know, it, 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 everything they've learned, everything they've heard. Every everything from the sound of their mother's voice to the sound of the falling rain to the you know uh, everything everything contributes to their musical vocabulary, in my opinion, and and certainly feel like it has with mine. In this city, I feel that more than anywhere else too. I feel that there are spirits and ghosts and for lack of a better word, not like not like boo scary ghosts, but you know. After hundreds of years, it's natural to hear about the legends of New Orleans music, like Louis Armstrong, Louis Prima, Pete Fountain, Al Hurt, Mahalia Jackson, The Meters, Dr. John, Fats Domino, Wynton Marcellus, Harry Connick Jr., and the Neville Brothers. But there are certain names, maybe not quite as famous, that you do hear over and over again. These are known icons in this city and to music aficionados everywhere, like Professor Longhair, James Booker, Alan Toussaint, Sweet Emma Barrett, Buddy Bolton, Kermit Ruffins, Terrence Blanchard, Sidney Bechet, Irma Thomas, Galactic, The Radiators, Rebirth, and the Dirty Dozen Brass Bands. As well as some of the newer bands like The Revivalists, Ivan Neville's Dumpster Funk, Trombone Shorty, and Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes, who represent not only great music, but something much bigger. Here in New Orleans, they are legendary demigods, or something close. And although all of these musicians might not be household names, their music and memories are also carried along by the musicians who come after. And of course, hats off and apologies to the hundreds of worthy musicians we didn't have time to mention here. We know the music of those who came before us informs what we hear now, in New Orleans and around the world. We also spoke to folks who intimately know the music, but aren't necessarily musicians themselves, about why this city's music is and feels so different. For some historical perspective on 300 years of music, which is a big topic, we spoke with Keith Sparra, who writes about New Orleans music and culture for the Times-Picayune and the New Orleans Advocate. You also heard him at the top of this episode. You know, New Orleans has always been uh, a melting pot. Uh, you know, it was a port town, so you had influences coming in from all over the world, along with um, that sense of uh, decadent abandon that sailors seem to bring with them wherever they land. Uh, so the city was set up to cater that, to, that, uh, to that mindset. Um, but right from the get-go, it was, it was a mix of things. It was, you know, founded by the French, Spanish took it over early, you know, Africans were coming in early on, uh, uh, you know, unfortunate circumstances, obviously. Um, but then you had migrations from the Caribbean and all these other places. So it was very much this um, collision of cultures and sounds right from the get-go. Um, and again, it's always had this sort of devil-may-care kind of party attitude, you know, sort of the, uh, the decadent Saturday night coupled with, you know, everybody running off to church on Sunday morning. It's always, you know, it's been a very Catholic town on one hand, but it's also been a town that supports Mardi Gras and all this other stuff. So it's it's an interesting mix here, and that has extended to the music. Um, and yeah, I don't know anyone, you know, people have suggested everything from like the water to the fact that it's below sea level. I mean, who knows what it is exactly, but it's always been a town 
that has been conducive to music and conducive to people playing a lot of different styles of music. You know, back in the day, the rhythm and blues guys that played on Fat Stamina records sometimes had to go to, you know, jazz gigs. You had, you had to be versatile. You had to be, uh, you had to be able to play a lot of different things, and that's still very much the case. You know, and, and something I've heard from musicians from elsewhere is that you don't have the sense of competitiveness here that you do in other cities. So it's much more of a musical community where people work together and people play in different bands and there's kind of a lot more of everybody uh, uh, helping pull each other up rather than knocking each other down. So I think that definitely fosters uh, creativity and, uh, and, a, and a healthy scene. For more on the evolution of jazz, specifically as the defining music of the city, we reached out to Dr. Holly Hobbs, a cultural researcher who earned her PhD at Tulane University in ethnomusicology. She sees the evolution of music here as having even more of an impact all over the country. Well, New Orleans is the northernmost tip of the Caribbean, and, uh, and because of that, our music is deeply West African diasporic and Caribbean in feel, particularly Haitian, Cuban, um, those two factors more than anything else kind of determined the lay of the land when it came to music in New Orleans. Uh, and so very drum-centered, very rhythm-centered, all of these things both culturally and musically came to form the kind of underpinning of the musical ecosystem in New Orleans. And then from that space, then you get all the different branches of early jazz, um, and then later early rhythm and blues, you know, rhythm and blues, rock and roll, they all came from New Orleans. So kind of the, the understructure of American music all really kind of started in New Orleans as the birthplace of American music. People tend to forget that um, and they tend to, um, you know, put it into, uh, you know, specific little pigeonholes of, you know, jazz or rhythm and blues or maybe Zydeco, which is outside of New Orleans, but still Louisiana identified. Um, and, you know, it's simply not true. You heard Holly mention the rhythm-centered nature of New Orleans music. That came up again and again as the defining characteristic of the unique sound of New Orleans. We got to talk with George Porter Jr., one of the legends of New Orleans music. In case you don't know, George was the bassist and one of the composers and singers of The Meters. Along with his founding members, Art Neville, Leo Nocentelli, and Zigaboo Modaliste, the Meters were one of the defining bands of the funk era and one of New Orleans' best-known homegrown groups. First playing as a studio or house band to so much of the R&B music created here in the early 60s, and then on their own from 1965 to 1977. George has played with literally everyone and was a guest for a few songs on the last Dead & Company tour at their New Orleans show. We asked him about what makes the music of the city so different. And here's what he said. He mentions here his bandmate in the meters, Zigaboo Modaliste, who is widely known as having defined the sound of funk drumming. Mostly drummers. Drummers, uh, New Orleans drummers have always had a, 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 different, a different taste or touch about how they play. This, this, you know, and and if they're playing, you know, if they well, they did jazz drummers today, but the funk, the funk pocket, and and the, um, and 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 that and that pocket that Zigaboo helped create and introduce to the world, I believe that 
um, drummers from all over the country love getting into that pocket. And, and, and so, you know, there's you know, musicians from all over the world come to New Orleans for that for that reason and that reason alone. If they, there's a, a thing. Why why does why does it happen? I, I don't know. I have no clue. It's older than me. Uh, um, I you know I'm I'm probably a great grandchild of that pocket. You know. Here again, you get this idea of centuries of tradition, mysterious tradition that people follow and learn, emulate and evolve upon. Taking the music of the ancestors, adding to it, and then making it their own. We talked with Terence Higgins, a New Orleans born and raised drummer, known for his work with dozens of artists inside and outside New Orleans, including everyone from George Porter, Art Neville, John Schofield, Warren Haynes, and Ani DeFranco. He talked to us about drumming and the sounds of New Orleans and brought us back to the unique mix of historical and cultural influences and the importance of the celebratory nature of the city and its music. I mean, it's just uh, the amalgamation of the different cultures here in New Orleans, you know, the African and the French and the Spanish. And all those cultures uh, mixed together, I just they just make you know, what it is, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, um, I look at New Orleans as the the northernmost part of the Caribbean. I mean, we get all of those rhythms tied into it, you know, the Trecejo, the, the, um, the um, Bambula, and all these different rhythms. And you hear it in all the music that we play. Being a drummer, you know, I understand those rhythms, but the culture that's behind all those rhythms is all celebratory. And, you know, it's, it's deeply African. So that kind of was make New Orleans different from even, you know, uh, anywhere outside of New Orleans. You know what I'm saying? Like even in Louisiana, New Orleans is its own little planet. So when, when you come here, you already into it. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's embedded in the culture. It is the culture. You know what I'm saying? So you can't escape it, man. Festival Circuit will return after this break. In the early 1900s, a classic New Orleans style of music was born that most refer to as Dixieland or traditional jazz. The term Dixieland, for the most part, has been replaced and is now referred to by the more racially sensitive term traditional jazz. Now, the biggest difference between jazz and what many consider traditional jazz is its use of collective improvisation. Instead of segmenting each musician with individual solos, it draws on the specificity of each instrument to create one unique and harmonious sound. Imagine everybody soloing at the same time. The term also refers to the traditional jazz that underwent a popular revival during the 1940s and that continues to be played well into the 21st century. Now let's jump to the 1950s. Post-war America was experiencing a huge economic growth but was fearful of the spread of communism. This combination of conservatism and materialism bled through to the music of the time as well. 
we saw the evolution into pop music with artists like Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly, and Richie Valens coming onto the scene. But we also saw the birth of rhythm and blues becoming more popular in mainstream music with artists like Sam Cooke, Little Richard, Ray Charles, and New Orleans' own native, Fats Domino. And jazz was changing too. Miles Davis put out his first album in 1951. New York's jazz scene was growing. West Coast jazz was bringing more people over to the cooler side, as it were. And various cities around the country were becoming their own crucibles for different kinds of jazz. And this had quite an impact on New Orleans. When people like Dizzy Gillespie came to New Orleans, local musicians took notice, and their music started to change too. Ellis Marcellus, father of Branford Wint Marcellus, who we'll talk about more in future episodes, took this evolving jazz and helped to change New Orleans' music. New Orleans remained a focal point of music evolution. And as jazz from around the country started to percolate in different ways, a new generation of imports were drawn to the Crescent City. During this time, a young couple from Pennsylvania came down to New Orleans for a visit and quickly embraced the city as theirs. This couple would eventually take over management of Preservation Hall and lay some of the groundwork for Jazz Fest. Their names were Sandra and Alan Jaffe, and they were the parents of Ben Jaffe, the Preservation Hall creative director we heard from before. Here he is again, discussing this migration to New Orleans and the evolving local music scene in the 1960s. Post-World War II, there was this huge music, New Orleans music renaissance, and they called, actually, they, they, I think they called it that. It was like the, the New Orleans music renaissance. Or, it was one of these things where, where every college along the East Coast would have these dances on the weekend, and there were these little New Orleans-style bands that would travel around and just kind of make the circuit and play fraternity parties, I, the same way that, that down here, like Deacon John or Irma Thomas used to play fraternity parties and dances on the weekend. All of these ideas were, were you know, new, new ideas. So my dad ended up coming down and was stationed outside of New Orleans at Fort Polk, Louisiana. And that was when he, he first started coming to New Orleans. It was just purely by coincidence that he got stationed in Fort Polk, Louisiana. And it was just by chance that he had a fraternity brother who had family here in New Orleans. So when he would come in, he knew people and it wasn't a completely foreign experience. It was completely new. They, they came here and it was, you know, kind of love as, as it happens off, more often than you can imagine. Love at first sight. And they took sort of a short-term rental on Royal Street and... Yeah, I mean, I could keep going because the story is amazing uh, how they discovered through a set of circumstances, they discovered a this gallery right here on St. Peter Street. And it was in this gallery that they, they met this group, collective of artists uh, who had been assembled by a gentleman named Larry Bornstein. It was Larry who sort of helped usher in the idea of having these jam sessions here with these um, African-American pioneers of jazz, you know, like the, the living, like breathing in this building, in this space, because at that time we're talking about the segregated South, legally segregated South. 
you know, at that time, it was, you know, Jim Crow laws. So the idea, this, this whole idea of black musicians and whites socializing was illegal. This whole, the whole concept of this was illegal. The artists figured out a, a way around this. Uh, you know, first of all, the, the French Quarter just seems to be a little bit more permissible. And they figured out that if it was an art gallery, they could sort of nudge the rules a little bit. And if nobody said anything, maybe we could just kind of fly a little bit below the radar and, and no one will notice. And we'll just, we won't make a big deal about it. We won't advertise it. We're not, we're just trying to enjoy the music and sell art. Although jazz started to emerge from the swampy confines of New Orleans in the early 1900s, which could be another podcast series entirely, in 1954, way up in Newport, Rhode Island, the first annual American Jazz Festival was held. It was an outdoor event held at the Newport Casino Athletic Complex, and 13,000 people came out to see it. The event featured Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Gene Krupa, and Dizzy Gillespie, among many other jazz greats. The festival funders hired a man named George Ween to organize and execute this festival. He also started the Newport Folk Festival in 1959. Now, this new idea of a music festival sent ripples all the way down to New Orleans. Again, Ben Jaffe of Preservation Hall picks up the story and tells us about how his parents worked with George Ween to create New Orleans' own jazz fest. Like the whole concept, the whole idea of a festival of standing around and listening to music and dancing and all, I mean, just the whole thing, eating like while you're listening to the music and all of it's just brand new or even listening to music outdoors. Like my parents had assembled, you know, this, this, uh, Hall of Fame ensemble, several Hall of Fame ensembles that were traveling around the country and ended up at, at the Newport Folk Festival. And that was the beginning of my, my dad's relationship with George Ween and my parents' relationship with George Ween and the first time that they not only heard about this thing, Newport Folk Festival and Jazz Festival, now they actually got to see it. And once you see it and experience it, that's when, that's when the notion of, oh, we can do this. If we, we, wait, Preservation Hall, this can happen in New Orleans. In fact, wouldn't it be amazing if it was something that celebrated the music that's already here and the culture that's already here? We don't have to import anything. We don't have to bring anybody. We don't have to bring Mississippi John Hurt all the way up to Newport. And we don't have to bring Billy and Dee Dee Pierce. And we don't have to do all that. We just have to, to, like, we just have to send a taxi, you know? Or they can just walk over because a lot of them live in Treme, you know, or over on Galvez. You know, the Barbarans, you know, lived right there on Galvez and Claiborne. And then Charlie Gabriel lived, like, that, you know, a couple blocks off of Claiborne. So everybody, you know, every, Buster's is right here on Orleans and... Uh, uh, Burgundy, you know, so it's like just you could cook the food here and just carry it over to Congo Square. You could just it was all right there, you know, so that that idea began percolating. And that's that's, you know, part of the oh, this could this could this could work here and it should, you know, not just as an opportunity, but as a this is exactly why my parents came to New Orleans. They came to New Orleans and committed their lives to creating a stage 
and a platform for musicians and giving them a voice, you know, and creating a respectful environment, an honorable environment, an honorable stage for them to perform. And that's what Jazz Fest created. It just created a bigger stage and a bigger platform. So in 1970, near the muddy waters of the Mississippi, the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival was born. George Ween was contracted to produce the festival, and he brought together advisors like Alan Jaffe, Ben's father, and Ellis Marcellus, the father of another famous New Orleans jazz family. Ween made two key hires for that jazz fest, names you will hear throughout this series, Allison Minor, an employee at Tulane University's Hogan Jazz Archives, and Quint Davis, who was an intern at the archives. According to the book, the incomplete, year-by-year, selectively quirky, Prime Facts edition of the history of the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, the first Jazz Fest held in Congo Square would run you just $3 to get in. For that, you'd see the gospel tent and four open stages, many of which lacked microphones. Acts included the Preservation Hall Jazz Band with Alan Jaffe, Duke Ellington, Fats Domino, The Meters, and many more. This festival brought out approximately 350 people and started on a Wednesday night with the Pete Fountain and Clyde Kerr orchestras playing on a midnight steamboat ride. Believe it or not, this nighttime steamboat ride will set the course in motion for the late night shows you see across the city during Jazz Fest today. 51 years later, the festival today offers eight full days of entertainment across two long weekends, 12 stages, hundreds of artists, and all of the food and culture that New Orleans has to offer. It's estimated that about a half a million people come to the city each year for Jazz Fest. And of course, over the past 51 years, festivals have evolved as well. When I first attended in the late 1970s, all of the stages, music, crafts, and food were held in the grassy area inside the track of the fairgrounds. But today, as the festival has grown, four of the stages, some of the food, and much of the crafts have moved to the outside of the track to accommodate the larger crowds and provide a better way to showcase the festival. Today, there are around 800 music festivals in the U.S. every year. Many come and go, but some have stood the test of time. Festivals are as popular as ever. There are huge disasters like Firefest and huge successes like Bonnaroo, which was partially inspired by the Jazz Fest. Festivals are getting more expansive, more elaborate, and more interesting, according to the music fans like us here at Osiris. But they're also getting more expensive. According to a 2019 Lending Tree survey, 23% of respondents had festival-related debt. Who knew that was its own category? But as long as the music is great, well, I guess it's worth it. We are left with more musical questions. Why do half a million people continue to come back to New Orleans every spring for Jazz Fest? And why does it seem like everyone in the city knows each other? In the next episode, we'll look closely at the idea of the musical family in New Orleans. We'll talk about members of musical families like the Nevilles, Marcellus's, Batiste's, and the Andrews. And we'll look at other ways family comes up, such as the family of New Orleans musicians, and the way many people see the entire city as a family. 
And we'll keep coming back to the water, the history, and the spirits that drive the music of New Orleans. It's kind of, it's just that, that, that idea, that idea you can't go, you can't go anywhere forward unless you know where you came from, you know? And it's like, how far back do you, do you keep going? You know, because ultimately it's like, like we were saying, like, how far do you want me to go back? Do you want me to back to the Exodus? Like, how far back do you want the story to go? Right. So it's, it's understanding that and also having a firm, firm understanding of New Orleans and not, and not forgetting that New Orleans is, is our source. You know, there's a source that feeds New Orleans, but New Orleans is, is the source for us. And then there's these other sources that feed into New Orleans. So there's like all these tributaries that feed in, you know, if you think about it that way, you know, a cultural historical tributaries that are, that are feeding this gigantic, you know, um, body of water, you know, and then it's all swirling together. Festival Circuit is presented by Osiris Media. This series is narrated and produced by me, Rob Steinberg. Executive producers are Christina Collins, Andrew Goodwin, and RJB, who also double duties as series writer and creator. Produced, edited, and mixed by Matt Dwyer. Show logo by Liz B. The theme song is Jazz Fest Time by Circus Mind, with special guest Ivan Neville. Thanks to all interviewees, to WWOZ and to Jay Mazza for his excellent book, Up Front and Center, New Orleans Music at the End of the 20th Century. Thanks for listening.